All right, so here we come. We're coming into a new year. Is that exciting? There always is some kind of a sense of excitement, I guess, or in some cases, a sense of dread. I don't know. We had an interesting conversation back in the back room when we were, before we got ready to pray there, or while we were getting ready to pray about all the current events in the world. And uh, I guess it's important to keep reminding ourselves as much as we would like to see everything just be great and hunky-dory and we look back with nostalgia upon the past and my wife and I have really been indulging in the old black and white movies lately, you know, and back when they didn't have, you know, sex in the movies and uh, foul language and that sort of thing and you kind of get nostalgic for simpler times without all the modern technology. And But at the same time, I think for believers, it's important for us to recognize, as we study the scriptures, you all know this because most of you have been here for a while and you, most of you have been believers for quite a length of time, and you know what the Bible has to say about the last days. And we've talked recently about how God has wanted every generation to expect Christ to come in their lifetime, and yet it hasn't happened yet. But we are guaranteed in the Word of God, that Christ will return. That's a promise. And God never breaks a promise, does He? But the thing that we tend to forget sometimes, I think, is that in order for our, our greatest desire to be fulfilled, I, I suspect, I would hope, for everyone here today, every believer in this room, that our greatest desire would be to see Jesus. Actually, I was just praying about this last night, and I said, Lord, you know, I would really prefer to go in the rapture rather than to die first. <laughs> but wouldn't we all, right? But I'm just telling them how I feel. You know, Lord, I'd just really rather be raptured than die. But if I die, I know I'm going to see you anyway. But I'd just kind of like to get the whole thing over at once. You know what I mean? But the thing is, there's a song. I'm trying to remember the name of the group. I know Allison Krauss is with them. It's a family, a gospel singing family. Anyway, they have a song. The lyrics are, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> and it's true. We tend to forget or ignore. Maybe we'd prefer not to think about it. But in order for our greatest desire to be fulfilled, not only to see Jesus, to see God's kingdom fully established upon the earth, just as the Bible says that he will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, I think we're probably all pretty fed up with the rule and reign of man, are we not? You know, we, we've been blessed, we've been fortunate to live, and I think you can make a strong case for the fact that historically, at least, the United States of America is the greatest nation that's ever existed on the face of this planet. And the reason for that was because God was the one who established it. But just like the Israelites forgot that everything they had came from God, and without Him they would have nothing, we know that that's been gradually taking over in America, that this uh, rejection of God, rejection of what He's done for us, the blessings He's bestowed upon us, and any nation that begins to forget where their blessings came from that nation begins to lose their blessings. But we have to embrace the fact that in order for our greatest desire to be fulfilled, not only to see Jesus and to be with Jesus, but to be a part of his millennial kingdom here on the earth, that things have to get worse before they get better. There's an old expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. Have you heard that one? And so it kind of presents an additional challenge even with our prayer lives because on the one hand, we pray for peace, for harmony, for unity, for a, uh, a diminishing of violence and all these different things that are plaguing our, our nation and our world today, the wars but Jesus did say in Matthew 24, in the last days it would be what? Wars and rumors of wars. And so it, uh, it puts us in an interesting position that 
On the one hand, we do pray for the best outcome, but we have to recognize the best outcome is for Jesus to come back. And that means a lot of bad stuff has to happen first. And so that's really, it tests our faith, it challenges our faith, but if we embrace it, it also strengthens our faith. Does it not? So, that's just a little prelude. It's not really what I'm going to be talking about this morning necessarily, although there will be elements of it woven into the message. But I want to talk about being in Christ in the new year. So as we prepare to enter a new year, this would be the perfect time, I think, to take stock of our relationship with God. There's something about the end of the year, the beginning of a new year, which is kind of a time for evaluation, you know, taking stock of our lives and where we're at, and more importantly than anything else, where we're at with God. And I think undoubtedly all of us should want to be in Christ as we move into 2019. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this too has a, a theme that will carry us into the new year. The new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And there's this kind of a mentality that we all take as we approach the new year. It's like wiping the slate clean. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. I know it's just a date on the calendar, but it is that time that we can look for new vision, for new hope, for new direction. I would propose to you this morning, as we begin to explore this topic, that this is, in my opinion, one of the most important verses in the New Testament. A new creation. All things have become new. And that, again, is something that we as believers could certainly profit from focusing on more than we do now. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word as we look to gain some traction and some vision for the new year. Not looking back. Your word tells us that we should not look back. That we should look forward. We should be forward-looking, hand to the plow, looking at what's in front of us. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, that verse... 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? That's the first thing we want to look at this morning. John 15.4, Jesus says, abide, or some translations say remain. Abide in me. So to abide in Christ is to remain in him and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus is teaching here in John 15 that he's the vine, we're the branches. Abide means live. We are to live or abide in Christ, to remain in him, to make him our dwelling place. We spend a great deal of time in the homes that we live in, do we not? And so we identify with that as our our place of rest and comfort and security. But spiritually speaking, that should be how Jesus is for us, that we abide in him, we live in him, we rest in him. Psalms 90 verse 1 says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. So we find that there indeed are some believers that have tapped into that. And really do abide in him, live in him, dwell in him. And there are others who just kind of check in now and then for a visit. You might ask yourself, which one am I? Do I really abide in Christ? Do I live in him? Do I make him my dwelling place? Or do I just kind of check in from time to time? Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, and here's, here's a big part of the secret to abiding in Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you die to self, if you've been crucified with Christ, the only way to live is to live in him. So Paul is teaching us here in Galatians 2, in order to be in Christ, one must crucify the flesh, die to self, and allow Jesus to come and live in me. So you see, if we are in Christ, this means he is in us. It's a mutually 
beneficial relationship, abiding in him and him abiding in us. Now we move on in John 15 to verse 9. As the Father loved me, Jesus says, I also have loved you. Abide or remain in my love. It's God's grace, his unmerited favor, his agape, his unconditional love that makes it possible for us to be in Christ. If we're to abide in Christ, we must remain in his love. This is very important. How do we do that? Verse 10. This might surprise you a little bit because when we talk about love as human beings, we tend to conjure up all kinds of thoughts of warm, fuzzy feelings, right? But look at what Jesus says next in relationship to this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide or remain in my love. You see, because from God's perspective, love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. Greater love has no man than this, than what? He lays down his life for his friends. That wasn't, Jesus was not having warm, fuzzy feelings when he was nailed to the cross. He was in agony. He was in physical torment and torture and pain before he even got to the cross. And then the nails were driven into his wrists. The palms would have never held the weight. They drove the nails through the wrist and then through his feet, which were, one was laid over the other, the nails were driven in. But he'd already been beaten beyond recognition before that. It wasn't a warm, fuzzy day for Jesus. And yet that's the greatest love. Greater love has no man than this. It's not a feeling, it's a commitment. It's absolutely essential that if we are to be in Christ, remain in Christ, abide in Christ, that we have to have that agape love, the fruit of the Spirit, manifesting itself in our lives. If you keep my commandments, you will abide or remain in my love. We remain in the love of God by walking in obedience to Him. To do otherwise is to walk in sin, and sin separates us from God, does it not? We're not talking about, oh my goodness, you lost your salvation, you're not saved anymore. No, but there's a breakdown in relationship. Uh, there's a breakdown in our ability and our capacity to abide and to remain in Him, to be in Him. And that's why we see so many people who identify as believers but there's no fruit in their lives. There's no evidence of a real relationship with God. Sometimes quite the opposite. And it really has a negative impact in terms of our witness in the world when people can very clearly see that we say one thing and do another. Because they have not gotten a hold of the concept that to be a true believer, to be a disciple of Christ, to be in Christ, means that you obey Him. Well, I don't know what he wants me to do. Really? You ever read that? There's more stuff in there for you to do than you're going to be able to do in a lifetime. Anybody who says, I don't know what God wants me to do, doesn't read the Bible. And in fact, the problem is a lot of people who do read the Bible still don't do what he says to do. And they don't refrain from doing what he says not to do. And yet, Jesus says, if... You keep my commandments. And he's not saying you must keep my commandments or you can't be saved. He's saying if you keep my commandments, you will abide. You will remain. There will not be a breakdown in our relationship. I will be in you. You abide in me and I will abide in you and I will enable you to be and to do what I've called you to be and to do. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Was Jesus 100% obedient to the Father? Yeah, the Bible says obedient even unto the cross. Remember in the garden, He says, Father, if there's another way, this would be a great time to let me know. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will. He was obedient unto death. And he set the example. And he says, I want you to abide in me by keeping my commandments just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that the goal 
is to be like God. Jesus is God. The goal is to be like God, and the Bible tells us that God is love. 1 John 4, 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So to abide in Christ is to abide in love. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now, if we, are, if we are willing to be objective and honestly evaluate ourselves, we can do that, especially with the help of the Holy Spirit. David prayed in the Psalms, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're willing to do that, the Holy Spirit will show us where we're falling short. And also, the Word of God is a lamp. It's a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Lamp into my feet and light into my path. If we're willing to look into the Word and let God shine His light into the inner recesses of our hearts and minds, we can tell where we're really at. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. We can look at our lives and see, are we bearing much fruit? Well, maybe a little bit. To the degree, and this, this is convicting to every one of us here today, including me. To the degree that we are bearing much fruit, that's the degree to which we are abiding. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And that's probably one of the biggest dangers we face as human beings and even as believers into thinking, well, you know, yeah, I call on God for the really big stuff, but most of the everyday stuff I can handle on my own. That doesn't work. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be abiding in him so that every aspect of our lives, he is vitally connected to that. That we're seeking him for wisdom, for guidance, for direction, for strength. Doesn't matter what area. Now, maybe my mechanical challenges I am mechanically challenged now there's some guys like Dave Moss Mike Silsker different ones they can do anything fix anything build anything I'm not like that but maybe it's a good thing because when I go to the, do the simplest task around the house I pray like crazy <laughs> I got blessed uh, a couple three months ago I've been wanting desiring this uh Weber Grill for many years. You familiar with Weber Grills? They're awesome. Mine was almost 20 years old. It was all rusted out on the bottom. You know, it still worked. We still used it. But, well, I walked into Lowe's one day and they were half price. It was after the season, you know, the summer season. And in New Mexico, if you noticed, at the end of a season, everything goes on sale. Even though most people will grill in New Mexico year-round, right? Same thing with clothing, you name it. It all goes on sale every th three and four months. So I thought, well, I'd sure like to have that grill. I went home and told my wife, hoping she would say, I'll buy it for you. <laughs> she didn't. That's okay. I probably didn't deserve it anyway. So I waited, and I, I don't know why I wound up there again the next day. <laughs> no, I think I was looking for some kind of a part or something, but for something around the house. You don't believe me. Well, anyway, it was marked down again. And I thought, this is God. So I bought the grill. Now, they had one. It wasn't really the color I wanted, but they had one on the floor already assembled, right? I think it might have been a little dinged up or something. But anyway, I thought, I'm just going to buy this one because it's already put together, and I don't want to deal with that. But I didn't have any way to get it home. So I called my daughter and her husband. They have a big truck, and they, they weren't available. And Anyway, I, I decided, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and get the one in the box because I can get that in my vehicle. They, they can load it in for me and slide it in there. So I bought the one in the box. The only problem was it's totally unassembled. 
And I was really scared, nervous, worried. I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I can do this. So I slid it out of the car. My wife helped me. We got it all set up and opened up top of a table where I could work with it. And I prayed really hard. And probably two hours later, it was all put together and worked perfectly. And I'm not mechanical at all. So it really enhanced my prayer life. But again, one of our biggest challenges is relying upon our own abilities, our own flesh. And so oftentimes what happens in life is that what we perceive to be our greatest strengths actually turn into our greatest weakness because that's an area where we don't rely upon God. And our greatest weaknesses, if we take them to God and bring them to God and seek His help, seek His strength, become our greatest strengths. Remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it was. Some have speculated that it was demonic. Some have speculated that it was a physical illness, possibly poor eyesight, some disease of the eyes, because he would often have other people write his letters for him. Uh, in one place he says, See with what large hand I write, because he apparently assigned that one himself. So some believe that that thorn in the flesh was a disease of the eyes. Nonetheless, he tells us he sought the Lord three times to take it from him, to take this thorn in the flesh from him, whether it was a spiritual issue, an emotional issue, a physical issue. What God told him was, do you remember? My grace is sufficient for you. Through your weakness, my strength is made known. And so it's in our weaknesses that we are, have the greatest opportunity to experience the strength of God at work in our lives. That's why this issue of being in Christ is so important. In Christ, abiding in Him, dwelling in Him, living in Him. And again, this verse is kind of... Many of you know that my life verse is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, this is the counter verse. If you had a coin and you were able to print those verses, on one side you would have Philippians 4.13, and on the other side I would put John 15.5. Without me, you can not do anything. You can do nothing. On one side, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and on the other side, apart from me, without me, you can do nothing. That would be a great coin to carry in your pocket. And you can do that mentally and spiritually, whether we have a physical coin or not. Even as we're reminded, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that's been a propelling verse in my life. With God's strength, I can do anything that He calls upon me to do. But without Him, I can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This is one of those verses that really causes us to stop and think. Any branch that doesn't stay connected to the vine, and that by connected, I mean remaining, abiding, living, dwelling in Christ, any branch that doesn't stay connected to the vine will dry up, wither, and die, making it useless. And again, I would suspect most of us here today that have any kind of vines, uh, rose bushes, some people have grape vines in their backyard and so forth, there's at least an annual pruning, if not more often, that takes place as you cut off the dead branches so that all the vital life-giving nutrients flow to the branches that are still alive, right? And that's the idea here. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. Now, they're burned. This is a difficult verse. You'll find some Bible teachers who will say, well, this is not speaking of a true believer because a true believer cannot lose their salvation. They can't be cast off or cast away. And yet, the fact that the branch was connected at one time, but now isn't, would seem to imply someone who at least at one point was a true believer. If we err on the side of grace, 
we would have to at least say that that person who doesn't remain, who doesn't abide, they may have had a genuine conversion experience, they may have been born again, they might have become a true believer in Christ, but by not doing the things that we need to do to remain. And this is one of the things we need to do to remain. To gather together, to worship, to fellowship, to study the Word of God. Obviously, you also have to have your own personal time doing those same things. Being a disciple, it comes, the word discipline and the word disciple, they're connected. Same root word. To be a disciple of Christ means that you practice the disciplines of the Christian faith. And so to remain, to abide, you have to be disciplined. Salvation is a free gift. We are saved by grace through faith. And salvation can take place in a moment, in an instant. But the follow-up to that, if we are to remain, to abide, to dwell, to live in Christ... It requires constant discipline to be a disciple. As Jesus said, if you obey my commands. You can't obey his commands if you don't know what they are. And you can't know what they are unless you're studying his word. Letting God implant his word deep within our hearts and minds. Let's move on. So, again, this verse is very challenging. At the very least, it should cause us all to stop and think, to ponder, to reflect, to evaluate, because I don't think any one of us would want to be cut off, have our relationship with God broken, for us to wither, to dry up. And I suspect that most of us here today know at least one or two people like that, who once at least had the appearance of a vital relationship with God, but now at this point in their lives, you would have to say, from all appearances, their relationship with God has dried up and withered. I know people like that, do you? Is it a good thing? It's not a good thing. It's a very sad thing. It breaks my heart to think of people that I've known in my life that I know at this point in time, they haven't renounced God, but they have no vital relationship with Him. There's no fruit. There's no evidence that they're abiding and remaining. And by the way, this is one of the reasons such a large part of the church today has become so liberal, so worldly, so ungodly. And therefore, Jesus said, hey, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, what good is it? Salt is a preservative. Salt brings out the flavor of foods, makes them more vibrant more enjoyable but it's also a preservative against the rotting of meats and so forth salt is used as a preservative god wants us to be preventative in terms of reducing the decay in this world but if you've lost your lost your zip your 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 salt is is dead and gone what good are you Verse 8, but by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Well, we were just told if we abide in him that we will bear much fruit. And that's how God is glorified when his children, his branches, bear much fruit. Not just fruit, much fruit. So you will be my disciples. We just talked about that word disciple. So the evidence that we're disciples of Christ is that God is being glorified by the lives we're living and that happens when we bear, what, much fruit, much. You ever seen a tree where the fruit didn't actually properly develop and they're kind of undersized and shriveled and it's a tremendous disappointment, isn't it? That's not bearing much fruit. And of course, when Jesus talks about fruit, he's talking about spiritual fruit, or we could call it the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And again, many Bible commentators, scholars believe that there really should be a semicolon there at that point 
and that all the words now that follow the word love are simply different facets and aspects of God's agape love. The word here in the Greek is agape, unconditional love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, semicolon. How does this love manifest itself? Joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. My Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. And so God is glorified in us and through us when we bear the fruit of love and all these different aspects or facets of that love. And I remember Pastor Chuck would always talk about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. We have a book back there. I think we still have one uh, called uh, Charisma versus Charismania, I believe. And there's another one that he has on the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit called Living Water. But Pastor Chuck would always say that the most important evidence that a believer is truly Spirit-filled is when they have love. Agape love, God's love, working in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit. So if there's no love, there's no fruit, no fruit means we're not abiding, we're not remaining, we're not dwelling, living in Him like we should be. Now I think we know why so many people who identify as believers really don't like studying the Bible. Because this is very convicting, isn't it? Wow. When we really look into His Word and we take it to heart, we receive it, we believe it, that's pretty heavy, man. No love, no fruit. No fruit, no in Christ. No abiding, no living in Him. Wow. It really exposes us, doesn't it? But that's God's desire and His purpose because He doesn't want us to go on disconnected from Him. He doesn't want us to go on living in sin. He wants to make sure that we do shine the light of His Word into our hearts and minds. And when we discover something isn't right, we go to Him. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ. I can have the fruit of the Spirit manifesting itself in my life as I remain in Him, as I abide in Him. I can do all things. Again, I want to read the verse we began with, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we can't really say, well, yeah, that's just the way I am. I'm going to get busted on this one, I know. I think I just used that on my wife this morning. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm however old you are. I'm not going to say my age. <laughs> I've been this way my whole life. I ain't changing now. Wait a minute. Oh, man. Anybody want to invite me over for lunch? I don't think I want to. I don't want to go home today. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Is this true or not? But guess what? Like so many of the things that God says in His Word about who we are, He very graciously, lovingly, and mercifully pronounces over us who we are in Christ, even though we're not there yet. You see? <laughs> we're a work in progress. He tells us who we are, and then we have to spend the rest of our lives seeking to become that person. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean that you're saved by works. He means now that God says you're this new person, you need to work on becoming that person and it's going to take you your whole life to do it. And then you still won't get there until you see him face to face and he finishes the job. But that aspect of remaining, abiding, living in Christ means that we are working towards that goal with his help. What does it mean to be a new creation? John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? It's almost like I'm too old to change. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb 
and be born. Nicodemus was thinking in the physical. Jesus was speaking in the spiritual. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physically, and of the spirit, a spiritual rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the new creation and the second birth, I believe, are one and the same. When you're born again, you become a brand new person, at least on paper. <laughs> we aren't just refurbished. You ever buy something that's refurbished? You always kind of wonder, don't you? Is this really going to work? Is this really going to last? What does refurbished mean? Did they really do anything or did they just wipe it off? God does not just wipe us off. We're not just refurbished, we are recreated. We get a fresh start, a second chance, a new beginning, if you will. But it's something that takes place internally. It's because God is a supernatural God. It has a certain mystical quality about it that He actually does something inside of us. We talk sometimes about having the DNA of God. But we are a new creation. What's the result of that? According to Paul, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Old and new what? Romans 6, 6 and 7. Paul writes, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. There it is again. I'm not sure that's something that a lot of people grasp when they first make a commitment to Christ. Maybe it's not explained. You know, it's kind of hard to cover all the bases when you're simply telling someone do you want to be forgiven for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe on the third day he rose from the dead and he lives forevermore? Yes. Would you like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I would. Okay, let's pray. So we don't always get to throw in all the peripherals like, by the way, this means you're being crucified. That might scare some people, right? By the way, maybe we should do that. But again, this is part of growing in Christ, learning, studying the Word, being a disciple that we learn as we go along. Our old man was crucified with him. Oh, I see. That, that means when I received Christ that I died, right? Right. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Even though we live still in these mortal bodies, we're to crucify the flesh. We're to say no to the flesh. We're to say yes to God. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see, believers still sin sometimes, unfortunately, because we haven't been perfected yet, right? We fall short of the glory of God. We blow it sometimes. Hopefully less and less as we go through life. But sometimes, it's more. But the difference is, when you're born again, when you're abiding in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. When you're a slave to sin, you pretty much do everything sin tells you to do, right? There's no hesitation. There's no resistance. And that's where people get confused sometimes. Well, I didn't think Christians ever sinned, really? <laughs> no, Christians do sin. We're forgiven. That's the difference. And it's not because we're worthy, we deserve it. It's because of His love, His grace, and His mercy. But the difference is we're no longer slaves to sin. Sometimes we get tripped up. We need to go to Him, confess, repent, continue on. Condemnation comes from the devil. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. No longer slaves to sin. For he who has died, that would be he, you and me, if we've died, we've been freed from sin. Dead men don't sin. They don't do anything. They just lay there. But we have life in Christ and he lives in us. But when, we're, when we die to self, we're no longer slaves to sin. And to the degree that we truly have crucified the flesh, we should be sinning less and less. Old things have passed away. The old man was a sinner. The new man is a saint. 
not perfect, but saved by grace and walking in love, which means what Jesus told us? In obedience, right? To walk in love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a commitment, and it's a commitment to obeying God no matter what the cost. Some people only obey God as long as it's convenient, as long as it's easy, as long as it doesn't create any conflict in their lives. But that's not true obedience. And that's not true love. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the old things, Paul says, your former way of life, the way you used to live, to put off your old self. You were taught to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And there's another key. The attitude of the mind. The battle is won or lost in the mind and our thoughts. The thoughts that we entertain or don't entertain. And to put on the new self, all the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You put off the old. You put on the new. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul uses the analogy really here of a garment. You're putting off the old garment, putting on a new garment, and that's the new creation. We're putting on Jesus. I remember an old song from the Jesus Movement days. It was called Put on Jesus. Good song. And when we talk about the armor of God, putting on the full armor of God, each piece is really descriptive of some aspect of Jesus' nature, his characteristics. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth, the shield, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. These are all aspects of Jesus Christ. When you're putting on the armor, you're putting on Jesus. So in Christ, we're to be a new creation. It's a new way of living, a new way of thinking, and a new way of acting or behaving. It's amazing sometimes when you hear people's testimony and you've only known them as a believer and they just seem like just a great person, and they are. Very godly, full of the Spirit, wonderful to be around, very inspiring, very encouraging. And then you find out, oh yeah, I used to be in a biker gang. I shot up heroin and we robbed banks and you think that, you, you're, that, no, that can't be. You're not that person. And that's right. No, they're not that person anymore. Because they're a new creation. And that is the most powerful testimony we could ever have is when people see that kind of a dramatic, radical transformation. Now there is a little snag that we can hit along the way and it's directly connected to what we've been talking about. Abiding in Him means to be abiding in His love. The love, the fruit of the Spirit coming forth from our lives. The agape love and all those manifestations. The joy, the peace, the righteousness and so forth. Jesus talks about it in Revelation chapter 2. Our first love. That love that we had when we first came to Christ. That passion and that's where commitment and feelings intersect it's kind of like when you first fall in love with someone revelation 2 2 through 3 jesus says to the church of ephesus i know your works your labor your patience that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars that's not nice jesus to call somebody a liar? Jesus, you need to get up to speed. That's not politically correct. We don't do that anymore. False apostles. Jesus said, hey, you call them liars and you're right. And you've persevered and have patience. That sounds like fruit of the Spirit to me. I've labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So far, Ephesus sounds like the perfect church. Verse 4, nevertheless, uh-oh. <laughs> it's never great when you hear that word nevertheless I have this against you wow that you've left your first love 
you have left, or one translation reads, forsaken, cast it aside, your first love, which was your love for God, your love for Christ. How many of you here today can remember your first love or your first infatuation, your first crush? What a great feeling, right? No one or no thing occupied your heart and mind like that person, right? You were obsessed. They were all you could think of. One term used is lovesick. You're so in love, it just you're sick. But as time goes on, if it turns into a lasting relationship, something else begins to happen. There's another old expression. Familiarity breeds contempt. Ouch. The things that you thought were so cute are now irritating. Right? It was cute for a while. I'm not lovesick anymore. I'm just sick. <laughs> you get bored. You begin to take the other person for granted. And voila, you've lost your first love, right? Do you think perhaps this sometimes can and does happen in our relationship with God? Again, there's nothing about God that should irritate us or make us sick. But again, sometimes His truth is irritating because it rains on our parade. I remember many years ago someone saying, when we, when we um, and I've shared the story before, when we first started the church, we had no official affiliation, even though I had a number of years of connection with Calvary Chapel. Had served in a couple of Calvary chapels. Went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa for a number of years. Have always considered Pastor Chuck to be my pastor. But when we first started, we were just an independent fellowship and I didn't like that. I didn't want to be a lone wolf out there all on my own. I loved Chuck. I loved Calvary. I loved, had a lot of good friends in Calvary. So I went to see Chuck and said, we want to be affiliated. And he welcomed me with open arms. And that's been most of the, of the 30 years that we'll be celebrating in a couple of weeks. There was only a couple of years where we, uh, maybe less, a year or two that we were independent. But I remember someone getting very upset when they found out that we'd become affiliated with Calvary. They had some uh, bones to pick with Calvary Chapel. And one of their complaints was, all they do is study the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I've already done that. I want to move on to the deeper things of God. You know, let me tell you something. Unless you are committed to the ongoing systematic study of the Word of God, you'll never reach the deeper things. That's the only way you get there. You get to the deeper things by digging deeper. But they were equating the deeper things with experiences and emotions. See how deceived we can become? They wanted to do the Benny Hinn stuff. The deeper things, right. Yeah, he digs it deep and piles it high. <laughs> Revelation 2.5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. One translation says the height from which you have fallen. Remember what Peter, we, we learned in uh, the writings of Peter, above all, love one another fervently, above all. But again, love, not a warm, fuzzy feeling, a commitment. Above all, be committed to Christ and to one another, unconditionally. Remember the height from which you have fallen, the apex and the epitome of the Christian life, the life in Christ, is the life of agape. The late, great Chuck Missler and his d dearly departed wife, Nancy. Nancy wrote a book many years ago called The Way of Agape. It's especially beneficial for ladies, but it's good for men too. The Way of Agape. Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, says he's talked all about the gifts of the Spirit, the prophecy, the tongues, all those things that are genuine manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But then he says, now I show you the most excellent way. And the chapter 13 is called the love chapter. It's all about love. It's all about agape. So just like Pastor Chuck said all those years ago, yes, we do need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We do need the baptism and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But if we're not manifesting 
agape love in our lives, and we'll read that in a moment. It's all for nothing. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So in that context, the lamp of this church, this body of believers, will be snuffed out if they don't repent and return to their first love. All the other good things that they're doing are good, but without the agape, without the first love, without that intimate relationship with God, that love relationship with Him, abiding in Christ, they're not really where they should be, where they need to be, where God wants them to be. The very height and epitome of being in Christ is to remain in the love of God from the moment we're saved till we meet Him face to face. And this is one of the things that, that i got to be honest, it's a little discouraging in the year 2018 as we move into 2019. I was talking to Pastor Ed before the service. We'll probably go over just a hair if that's okay. I was talking, if it's not okay, we're still going to go over just a hair. <laughs> I was talking to Pastor Ed about uh, my remembrances as a young adult back in my 20s at a Calvary Chapel in Denver. And there were just all these young guys and young women around just dying to serve God, to be in ministry of some kind. And they were so committed and so dedicated. And we'd have, you know, little classes, gatherings where the pastor would uh, teach us and uh, guide us and direct us and help prepare us for ministry. And all those people were serving, you know, ushering, whatever, cleaning up, just all kinds of servant jobs. But they were just all chomping at the bit to serve God. That was their number one priority. And as I look around today, I'm not seeing a lot of that. And I've got to be honest, it's a little bit discouraging to see the lack of motivation in the lives of so many people today, whether young or old. That's something we need to pray about, pray for. There's so many distractions today. Again, it was a different world. We're talking about, you know, the 70s. I hate to date myself, but some, I'm talking about the 70s, the 80s maybe, but as time has gone on, there's just more and more distractions. We didn't have cell phones back then. Are you shocked? Oh my gosh, he's older than dirt. We didn't have laptops, iPads, tablets. Made of, might have had cable TV. I don't even remember if we had that yet. I mean, the amount of distractions that have been brought into this world in my lifetime, in your lifetimes, it's amazing. And we were talking about some of these things as well in the back. And I said, the enemy has done a really good job of entrapping us all or sucking us into these things. And it's produced generations now with a lack of motivation and a desire to serve God, to put God first, to abide in Christ, because there's just too many other things to do, too many other directions to go in, too many other, quote, priorities. And it's, history repeats itself. The same thing happened to Israel. The more prosperous they became, the more they forgot about God. Man keeps inventing more and more ways to make sure that he can forget about God and be distracted and brought away from God. And that's another indicator that we are indeed in the last days. Why does Jesus tell the church of Ephesus, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've forsaken your first love. You've left it. Therefore, you need to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, the height from which you've fallen, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We can be doing all the right things. They were, the church in Ephesus, they were doing all the right things. We saw that. They were taking a stand against the false teachers and so forth. They were persevering. But they'd lost their first love. If God's agape love is not the driving force, 
We, like the Ephesians, have forsaken our first love and have fallen from the heights of intimate fellowship with God. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians 13. We're getting close to the end. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, notice it's not just some, all, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned. Well, wait a minute, why would you bestow all your goods to feed the poor if you don't have love? Maybe for outward appearance? Maybe to show people how spiritual you are? Maybe to try and earn brownie points with God? And though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Why, well, I could even be martyred. I could die for my faith and have it mean nothing? That's, that's a little bit disconcerting, is it not? If I don't have love. Agape. Again, we, it is so hard for us to process this word in English and have it really penetrate for what it really means. It doesn't mean feelings. It means commitment. It means dedication. It means self-sacrifice, unconditional love, giving without expecting anything in return. And then verse 13, now abide, remain, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There are three things that will abide, and what Paul's talking about is when everything is said and done, and we see Jesus face to face, and we're ruling and reigning with him in the millennial kingdom. When all is said and done, these three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love. These things will remain with the true believer. And the greatest of them is love, agape. So as we approach the new year, folks, I think this is a good time for us to reevaluate, allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, check the loveometer, if you will. And see if we're low on love. Kind of sounds like a song. Low on love. Doesn't it? <laughs> that would be one version. That would be the hard rock heavy metal version. I don't know why that's the version that came to me. But. Matthew 24, 12 and 13. Because lawlessness, wickedness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. What does this tell us? What is Jesus telling us that in the last days in particular? It's going to be increasingly difficult to remain in the love of God in the last days. We face perhaps the greatest challenge of any generation of believers that's ever lived on this planet. Because the end is drawing near. Things are getting darker. It's always darkest before the dawn. Because of the increase of wickedness or lawlessness, it will abound. The love of many will grow cold. God spoke to my heart several years ago about that. It's an ongoing work in my own life. I don't always do well. I was getting mad at somebody in front of me who was doing a weird thing on the on-ramp to the freeway. And I started uh, deriding them. I mean, by myself. I was talking to myself. That idiot, what, you know. Yeah, not, none of you have ever done that, praise God. <laughs> and God spoke to me and said, you know what? You better watch out, your heart is getting hardened. Because of lawlessness, because of wickedness all around us, the love of most, many, will grow cold. But he endures to the end. So part of enduring to the end is remaining, it's abiding. It's not departing from the love of God. It's not departing from the truth of God's word. It's enduring. So we have to daily reckon that old man dead and allow Jesus to live his life of love in us and through us. Final verse, Romans 6, 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take up this challenge for the new year, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it makes us very uncomfortable, but that's a good thing. Lord, we should not become comfortable. We should not become complacent. We should not become apathetic. That's what happened with the Ephesians. They were doing all the right things, but the driving force behind it was not that first love, that agape love. 
Lord, we must ask ourselves this morning, how many of us are doing the same thing? We're doing all the right things, but there's no love there. Father, we need to take up this challenge. We need to take it seriously. Please cause your Holy Spirit, your word, by your spirit to be buried and penetrated deep within our hearts and minds. We pray that the fruit of the Spirit would come forth in our lives in this new year. Lord, that we would take up the challenge to abide, to live, to dwell in you, to come apart from the world, remain separate, to be the disciples of Christ that you've called us to be so that we really can make a difference in this world. Not because we're straining and striving for it, but because the Spirit of God is working in us and through us. Lord, let this be our New Year's resolution. We pray for a great new year in 2019 where we will see a marvelous work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives and in our church as a whole. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not yet been born again, that's where the new creation begins. We ask that you draw them to yourself today, that they might start the new year by making a personal commitment to Christ. And Lord, for those who are already believers, but maybe need to renew that commitment, this is the perfect time to do it. So we pray in these closing moments as we worship, sing our final song as people come for prayer, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit today and we would see that new creation manifested in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.